If you'll take out your Bibles and turn to Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We're returning to our study of Philippians uh, this week after Pastor Caleb's five-part series on sexuality. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, to be able to sub in for him to come off the bench while he's on sabbatical, so continue to pray for him. I realized it's, I haven't put on this robe since pre-COVID, so it's a little dusty, so bear with that. Uh, well, we're back in Philippians again. Uh, it's been several weeks, so we need to have a little bit of a review uh, to set the context of where we find ourselves in chapter 2. Uh, if you look back at chapter 1 so far, Paul has had some very positive things to say about the church at Philippi. Uh, he's praised them for their partnership with him in the gospel. Uh, he says that he holds them dear in his heart as they are partakers of grace with him. He's also thanked them for the support and the prayers that he's received while uh, he's been in prison from them. So clearly the Philippian church was in pretty good shape, uh, at least in their external work of growing and spreading the kingdom of God in this world. And yet, if you look at, uh, starting at about verse 27, at the end of chapter 1, moving into chapter 2, it seems like the, the church at Philippi had some much-needed work to do in the interior, in their relationships with one another as a local church family, in the vital work of connecting as a community. So as we read these verses and as you hear the word preached, uh, I want you to consider if these words are applicable to us here at Pear Orchard. Of course, all of God's word applies to us. But we need to ask ourselves, do we ever struggle in our own relationships here at Pear Orchard while at the same time maybe doing a better job at, at reaching out uh, at those outward reaching ministries of the church? Or to put it another way, do we do a good job of welcoming people in but find it more difficult to have real relationships with one another here at Pear Orchard? So uh, look at chapter 2 and let's read God's inerrant holy word together, starting in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we come to your word, we come <clears throat> with humility, we come in submission, we ask that you teach us your word, that you use your spirit in our hearts to enliven it to our souls, apply it to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your word this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of you may know this about me, but others that don't know me, I, I love the academic discipline of logic. I never actually had the opportunity to have a formal class in high school or in college, but living for two years with a law student in graduate school gave me on-the-job training. 
Uh, if I hadn't learned logic during that time, he would have buried me in every single argument uh, in our apartment. Well, I think we'd all be much better thinkers if we took a formal logic class or two, since we, we live in a world that's driven so much by emotional arguments uh, rather than logical ones. Now, if you've taken a logic class before, you, you may remember that one of the foundational building blocks of good logic is what's called the if-then uh, logical argument, the if-then conditional argument. Even if you haven't, you're probably familiar with this format. If one thing is true, then the other thing is necessarily true. If one is true, then the other thing is necessarily true. Now, parents use this logic a lot with their children. You children realize this. They say things to you like, if you finish your chores in a satisfactory way, then you can play outside. Or maybe they say to you, if we decide to adopt this puppy, then you have a lot of work cut out for you to take care of him. Well, of course, this second example is an, also an example of a, what we call a logical fallacy, since parents always end up taking care of the puppy. So you get the idea, right? If the if is true, then the then must also become true. Well, even if you don't enjoy the uh, art of formal logic as much as I do, as a Christian, you must learn to love biblical logic. Biblical logic is a very important tool that enables us to keep from becoming confused by the temptations of this world, by the thinking of this world, by our own sin, and the deception of Satan as well. Now, if you look at chapter 2, we actually get a healthy dose of vital biblical logic in these first four, first four verses of Philippians 2. This is really an extended if-then argument that Paul makes. Uh, and you look at it there, the logical format Paul gives us is if these four things are true in the Christian life, then these other three things must be true. If these four things are reality, then these next three are your responsibilities, the if-then of the Christian life. So we begin with the if. Uh, look at uh, verse 1, but before we get there, look back uh, for a minute back at verse 27. So we put this in the larger context of what Paul is saying at this point. Starting at verse 27, Paul uh, begins this section of, of exhorting the church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says this manner that's worthy of the gospel is only possible if we have the mind of Christ, if we are renewed in our mind, which only comes from being united with Christ. As I said at the outset, this church at Philippi was struggling, it seems like, with these internal issues, with how they were treating each other uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul has already begun to instruct them. And as we go into chapter 2, he begins with these if statements, these if arguments. He asks them if these realities are operating in their lives. So, so look again with me in verse 1. You see it right away though. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. Another word for encouragement here is the word consolation. 
Paul is asking them, Christian, have you received any consolation, any help in the challenges of living in this fallen world because you're united with Christ, in Christ? Do you, have you received any help, some encouragement, consolation because you are vitally united with Christ? And then the second if statement, he says, if there is any comfort in love. So Paul goes a little further than consolation and says, do you, Christian, receive comfort in your trials, in your suffering? Does the love of God strengthen your heart in times of trouble if there's any comfort in love? And then third, he says, if there's any participation in the Spirit, in other words, does the reality of the, the fellowship you have with the Spirit as a believer produce community in your life? Does it produce community with other believers? Since we all have the same Spirit, do we have that commonality with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? And then finally, fourth, he asks, if there is any affection or sympathy the word underlying these two words here is actually one word, compassion, tender-hearted compassion. Have you, he says, as a Christian, ever enjoyed the compassion of God in Christ or the compassion that comes from other people because they're in Christ and they have compassion for you? So consolation, comfort, community, and compassion so what's the, the logical answer to these if statements? Had the Christians at Philippi, as well as we Christians here at Pear Orchard, received any of these things? Now, you have to appreciate Paul's humor here. Notice his repetition on any. Christian, he's saying, have you received any of these things? Well, yes, we have received incredible consolation in Christ. Yes, we've received comfort from the love of God all the time. Yes, we enjoy the communion with the Spirit and with other believers. And yes, we've all experienced the compassion of God in one way or another. The truth is that the Philippians, as well as we here at Pear Orchard, have received much more than any, if we take any time at all to think about it and to reflect on our lives. What Paul is really saying is that these four ifs are realities. These are realities for the believer. They simply come with our adoption as children of God, with our justification with Christ, with our union of, with Christ. These become our realities. These are the daily work of the Spirit in our life. They are realities. So that's the if part of this text. So then Paul moves on to the then. Again, remember the logic. If Christian, these ifs are true, <clears throat> then you as a Christian have certain responsibilities. Thir certain other things must become realities as well. Now, before we turn and spend the bulk of our time on these three responsibilities, uh, notice the umbrella appeal that Paul puts them under. He says, if these four realities are true in your life, then, what does he say? Complete my joy. Or another way it could be written is make my joy full. 
as we said earlier, the Philippians were already doing things that brought Paul great joy in the Lord. But what he's saying here is there's still more for them to do. He's being a good parent here uh, to his spiritual children. He's saying things uh, that uh, children and youth, maybe your parents say to you. They might say something like, you bring me a lot of joy uh, in this life, but you're still lacking a few things that if you did those, I'd be so much more happy. You ever hear that? And parents, do you ever say that? That's what Paul's saying. You bring me such great joy. Now complete that joy. Make me even happier uh, with you, with these other things that are lacking. And so what are these three responsibilities? Well, really in these next couple of verses, Paul gives three categories of behavior that should mark the lives of believers. And we'll put them this way, harmony, humility, and helpfulness. Harmony, humility, and helpfulness. Look at verse two for our first one of these then. Again, these are all in the category of if these things are true, then make these things true. Look at verse two. Paul writes, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, if you've read Paul at all uh, in Philippians or one of his other letters, this should sound familiar to you. This is one of the great themes that Paul has repeated over and over again. Just a couple of different places where you hear these same things. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Paul instructs the church this way. He says, be complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 3.11, he exhorts Christians there to be like-minded. And then even back in uh, chapter 1, verse 27 again, Paul tells them, be firm in one spirit with one mind. Now, if you've been in Sunday school with me when we've studied through Paul's letters, you know one of my favorite things about Paul is his repetition. Uh, He repeats things over and over again like a good parent. He knows what we need. We need to hear them over and over and over again. And look what he does in verse 2. He's saying the same things. But look at the specific language he uses. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. So we need to uh, take a few moments and, and talk about what Paul is not saying and then what he is saying. First, Paul is not saying that all Christians need to be the same in all things. Actually, in his letters, he says the opposite. He talks about how different we are, that we have different gifts. You'll remember verses about that, right? We have different callings. He even talks about how we have different ministries by the same spirit. So Paul is very used to thinking about us as being different. We're not to be clones. We're not to be cookie cutter Christians who uh, act exactly the same or are the exactly the same. That's not unity. That's uniformity. And that's not what Paul is talking about. But we are supposed to be the same in core ways. Since we're all, for uh, one thing, as Christians, in vital union with Christ. If we're all in union with Christ, then we should be the same in some very core areas. And those are the things Paul is listing for us there. 
Uh, and basically, he's using three different uh, ways to approach it. First, he's saying, says we should have the same mind. In other words, we should have, all have the mind of Christ. Right? Being in Christ gives us the mind of Christ. We are all to think biblically. That's something we should share in common. We should all have a Christian worldview. That's something all Christians should have. We should be the same in that, the way we think. But second, we are also to have the same love, it says, or the same heart. The same heart for God, the same heart for other people. We're, if you think about it as Christians, we're to love the same things, love the same way. God loves us. The big things in life, we are to, to love the same. But that last one uh, in the list, the, the one mind, has to do with the same purpose. We're to have the same goal. We're to have the, have the same aim. We're to have that same goal of, of uh, spreading the gospel, of making disciples of all nations, of, of growing the kingdom of God in this world. We're to, we're to share that. We're to share that as, as the same. So in that, those ways, Paul is saying, uh, Christian, we're to have the same mind, the same heart, the same purpose, because all this, uh, we unify around Christ Jesus alone. But you see that I haven't used the word unity for this section, but the, the broader term of harmony, because I think Paul is really getting to that point of wanting to speak more of what harmony looks like among believers. Where do we see that? Well, we see it with the two simple words here, full accord. That's a, that's a harmony phrase. What Paul is saying, when, when we have the same mind, the same heart, the same purpose combined with different gifts, different personalities, different experiences, different callings. We must bring those together in full harmony. In other words, if, you're, if we're not unified, we don't have unity in the essentials, right? In the core of the faith, then our differences that we have over here will divide us. They just do that, right? Differences will divide. But what keeps different people, different personalities, different ministries together is, are these unities in the faith, this un unity of heart, mind, and purpose. Now, thinking of a way just to illustrate that, to, to help us, uh, I've taken uh, an illustration from the world of graphic design. <clears throat> Now, graphic designers are, are actually, if you, if you study graphic design, and many of you have, uh, they are taught those two important words of unity and harmony uh, as basic building blocks of all that they, they do. Uh, and it's taught this way, uh, <clears throat> at least in Wikipedia teaches it this way. Um, they would, we would learn in graphic design that a good and pleasing design has both unity and harmony. It has, on the unity side, it has particular elements that are repeated throughout the design, like the same colors, the same shapes, the same materials are used. You have to have those things to have unity in your design. But then, to have harmony, you have to work to fit all those elements together. And those elements uh, might fit together in, a, in, a, in one theme, in one particular aesthetic style, or one particular mood. That pulls uh, all those same things together in a good design. 
Now, even someone like me, who my wife says I have absolutely no uh, ability in graphic design, I have no, no eye for any of that stuff, but yet, even I can look, and you can too, at an interior or a picture or a website, and you can tell right away if it lacks unity and harmony because it, it's not pleasing to the eye at all, right? It, it's, it's dissonant to the eye. And that's really what Paul's talking about here, that, that Christians are to have the same mind, the same love, the same heart, the same purpose, and then fit that together in harmony with all of our differences so we can pull together God's design and that his design would be beautiful to the eye, to the eye of the Lord, as well as the, the watching world who's, who's looking at us all the time. That's harmony, right? That's what Christians are to, to live in uh, according to this first responsibility. So let's look at the second one. We see this second one in verse three. Let's read that again. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul charges Christians with the impossible task of humility. Yes, it's impossible, right? Because none of us are born with it. None of us are born with humility. It's something that regularly goes against our nature. Sure, some of you out there may not be outwardly or aggressively boastful or proud, and yet that doesn't mean you don't struggle with humility, uh, especially uh, with certain people or in certain situations that you find yourself in. And so humility is something, again, impossible for us and only possible in Christ. So let's break down the specific terms, though, of uh, what Paul uses to talk about humility. Uh, first, uh, for the first two terms, he begins in the negative. He starts with what we're not to do. Look there, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Now, the sense of that word, it's actually one Greek word, uh, is this, uh, is a strong drive for personal success without any moral inhibitions. So you, see, you hear what Paul's talking about, right? He's not talking about striving to do excellent work or the pursuit of ambition and success on its own. What he has in mind is ambition with no regard for other people or no regard for anything moral. Uh, the classic stepping on people to get to the type, uh, top mentality. Now, another word, and you might have it in your translation, but the, another word here is rivalry. Uh, he says, do nothing from rivalry. So same, uh, similar sense, right? This sense of sinful competition, doing something just to defeat another person, just to be better than someone else. So how do we do things in the church from selfish ambition? Seems to go against everything we're about as believers. Because certainly we see selfish ambition in this dog-eat-dog -dog world that we live in all the time. But what was Paul seeing and hearing about in Philippi? And more importantly, what does the Lord see here when he looks at us? Do we ever find ourselves stepping on one another or over one another in ministry? Do we ever see ourselves wanting to do things in the church to make myself look better, to look better than my rival? Are we more concerned with our own achievements and accomplishments 
than really serving God and serving one another. So do nothing from selfish ambition, Paul says, but he, he moves on from there, doesn't he? He says also do nothing from conceit. His second uh, negative here, the thing we're not to, second thing we're not to do if we're going to act in humility. The sense of this word is actually, we'll put an adjective on it, empty conceit or uh, cheap pride or pride with no reason to be proud. Now you might be saying, rightfully so, isn't all pride sinful? Well, we know that Paul talks about that a little bit. He writes that his pride, his boasting is only in the Lord, right? Uh, that type of pride, if we can call that pride, has the right basis to be proud, right? The right basis to boast on. Our pride, unfortunately, is typically sinful because its basis is self, of which we have nothing truly to be proud of. Any good gift we receive is from the Lord. Any good work we do uh, in the church is from the Lord. Even if we say that we're proud of our children, those are gifts from the Lord, not from anything we have done. So Paul's calling on us to put away that empty pride, that vanity, that vain conceit that does nothing but puff us up. It does nothing good. And, and of course, it's in opposition to humility. So again, we must ask ourselves, how are we acting in conceit here towards one another? How am I acting in pride rather than in humility? Am I making ministry about me, about how good I look, about how much praise I get for my great job and I'm disappointed when I don't receive that? Or is my boasting truly in the Lord uh, so that humility will shine through? Now, the truth is we all know conceit uh, when we see it in others. But what about in ourselves? Do we examine ourselves well uh, to uh, have no conceit? And then finally, he, he adds the positive to what humility is. Look at it. He says, count others more significant than yourself. This is the positive command of humility. The one thing we must do in order to truly act in humility towards one another. But if you're like me, you're looking at this and like, come on, Paul, really? Really count others more significant than myself? Well, we need to really look here at what Paul is saying. <clears throat> and again, what he's not saying, because we know that Paul is not saying that everyone out there is more significant than you, or that everyone has more value than you do, or is better than you. We know that we all have equal value in the eyes of the Lord. So we're not to devalue ourselves somehow, according to Paul's words here. We're not to be in some constant state of self-deprecation or treat, uh, treating ourselves constantly as unworthy, worthless worms of some sort. The key word in this text is count. It also means consider. The sense here is how you see other people. Do you see other people in your life as truly more significant than you? Do you govern your life with the worldview that gives significance to all people, friends and enemies alike? This view of people should guide everything we do in the church, all that we say, all of our heart attitudes, that anyone I meet 
is made in the image of God and deserves that I love them with the love of Christ. Now, I have to admit, and maybe you do as well, that I don't personally know a whole lot of people like this uh, who are totally consistent in counting others more significant than themselves. And the handful of people I do know, or I think I know, I wouldn't even bring up their name because they're too humble for me to use them as an example. But the truth is, there's only one example that matters, and that's Jesus. And Paul is actually, if you look down, I don't want to get a, a spoiler alert for next Sunday, but verse 5, Paul starts to talk about that, about that the only true example of humility is Jesus Christ. So we at Pear Orchard are charged with this call, this call to count one another, to count others as more significant than ourselves. What a joy it would be to see us all growing in that kind of humility. All right, then we go on to our third point, our third responsibility, the third then expressed by Paul in this way. Look at those verses. Let each of you <clears throat> look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now that last uh, part of our text is actually a, a fascinating section because in the original Greek, the word interests is not there. Uh, it's a filler, what we call a filler word that help make English trans, uh, translations make sense so we English speakers can understand what Paul's trying to say. So the proper rendering of that sentence is this. Let each of you look not only to your own something, but also to the something of others. They're blanks. So now think of all the things you could put in those blanks. Uh, this is actually how John Piper uh, put it when he preached on this text. He said these words. He says, so it could be, let each of you look not only to your own financial affairs or your own property or your own family or your own health or your own reputation or your own education, or your own success, or your own happiness. Don't just think about that. Don't just have desires about that. Don't just strategize about that. Don't just work towards that. But look to the financial affairs and property and family and health and reputation and education and success and happiness of others. Well, this is just Paul's way of saying, love your neighbor as you love yourself the second part of the great commandment. But of course, to make this uh, sermon more memorable, I've labeled this third responsibility as helpfulness to round out the three H's because that's what Paul is really saying. When you look to the interests of others, to the something of others, to the anything of others, you're striving to be helpful you're not ignoring what other people are going through. And on the other hand, you're not trying to control what other people are doing or not doing. You're just there trying to help, to look out for others. The way a neighbor in the old days would, would look out to be uh, helpful to their neighbors around them. Now, hopefully you are in a neighborhood like that and you're that kind of neighbor but we're supposed to be this kind of neighbor here. We're supposed to be helpful with one another in the local church. So again, we have to ask ourselves and I ask you, are we being helpful to one another? Are we looking out for one another, especially 
the ones among us who need help, but will never ask for it? Or are we too consumed with the busyness, the craziness, the pace of life that we've chosen to be of little help to other people? Well, when we're in Christ, again, we are responsible to be helpful. So there you have it. This is all good biblical logic for the Christian life. If then, if you are in Christ, if you are enjoying all the real blessings that come in a relationship with Jesus Christ, then be like Christ. Be in harmony with other believers. Be humble. Be helpful. All these things, when you think of those words that are going to build up and strengthen the body of Christ, that makes the church more attractive to the world. All these things that can only happen because of Christ in you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word that convicts us, the word that challenges us to know the realities that are in our life that we enjoy every day because of our adoption as believers, as children of God, as united to Christ. And yet with that brings vital responsibilities, vital things that we are to make real in our behaviors toward one another. Lord, change us, convict us, grow us in that today. In Jesus' name, amen.